Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr David Coleman, who is a senior lecturer in English at Nottingham Trent University. His research explores the interactions between English Renaissance literature and the emergent discourses of religious, ethnic and national identity in the early modern Atlantic archipelago. He is the author of two books on English Renaissance drama, Drama and the Sacraments in 16th Century England and John Webster, Renaissance Dramatist. His paper is entitled From Tudor to Stuart, Sir John Davies and Ulster. A, a bit of context perhaps might be useful since we've got this little bit of breathing space. This comes from a project which I'm currently working on um, entitled English Literature and the Ulster Crises of the 17th Century. So it's from a, a larger project about English interpretations or representations of Ulster, particularly in literary genres. So I'm going to be speaking about Davis primarily um, as a poet and as a former poet rather than as the uh, administrator, if that's what we want to call him, that he becomes. So the career of Sir John Davis can be seen as emblematic of the changes in courtiership brought about by the reimagining of British monarchy in 1603, while critical discussion of Davis can be seen as emblematic of the radical shifts in evaluative paradigms which have taken place in English studies over the past three decades. I should, if it's not clear, make it uh, make it clear that I am a literary scholar rather than a historian, so I'm in the minority. Um, and that's the perspective from which I'm approaching Davis. So Davis was a lawyer by training, but his primary public role in the Elizabethan court was as a poet. And it was as an Elizabethan poet that he was primarily known to literary critics prior to the political turn of the 1980s. From that date onwards, it has been the Jacobean Davis who has almost exclusively served as the focus of critical inquiry. This is Davis as legal imperialist, promoter of the British interest in Ireland. If one generation of critics knew Davis primarily as the author of Noske Tapesum, a long philosophical poem on the nature of the soul, a more recent generation has known him as the author of a discovery of the true causes why Ireland was never entirely subdued a historical narrative congratulating the Jacobean administration for its success in Ireland. Now this radical change in the conception of a single author raises important questions about the nature of contemporary critical inquiry, about the questions it asks, and about the presupposition, presuppositions excuse me, which critics bring to their material. But this bifurcation of Davis into an Elizabethan poet and a Jacobean imperialist, neither of which seem closely related to each other, does in fact seem congruent with the textual record, a state of affairs which raises significant questions in itself. So the reasons for the cessation of poetic activity, the apparent incoherence between the poetry and the later prose, and the difficulty then of forming a clear picture of Davis a Tudor and Stuart picture, we might say, 
All of these, I think, are legitimate imperatives to look again at this figure who has, I think, been neglected by literary critics. And from the perspective, from the wider perspective of, of a study of early modern Ulster, Davis demands attention. This English poet turned British proto-imperialist was present in Ulster throughout much of the tumultuous first decade of the 17th century and has been claimed as one of the architects of James' policy in Ireland. That Davis spent some considerable time in Ulster and that his legal and historical writings are central to understanding early 17th century English interpretations of the province is largely accepted in the biographical record, however much it continues to be overlooked by many literary critics. Sean Kelsey's Oxford DNB entry on Davis notes many of the specificities of the writer's engagement with Ulster, both physical and ideological, and Kelsey's conclusions are summarised as quotation one on your handout. It is his contribution to English imperialism in Ireland which constitutes the most substantial portion of his legacy, and in particular his expansion of the use of civil law there in an attempt to justify and consolidate English sovereignty. His assertion of an English title to Ireland by right of conquest after the conclusion of Tyrone's rising in 1603 effectively reduced the entire kingdom to the condition of virgin territory over which none but the crown could claim any proprietary right and simultaneously eradicated the jurisdiction of ancient Brehan law. It did much to help provoke both the flight of the Northern Earls and the rising of Sir Cahar O'Doherty, the first of which Davis seems to have connived at quite deliberately, events which themselves cleared the way for the plantation of Ulster. So the poetry is unimportant in this reading of Davis. Davis' legal imperialism is seen as his most significant mode of engagement with the Ulster crises of the early 17th century, with which, rightly, he is perceived as intimately related. Now, while not wishing to deny the historical and cultural significance of Davis' legal imperialism, this paper aims briefly to suggest that attention to the nuances of Davis' rhetorical and poetic registers can perhaps open up a more sophisticated understanding of this important historical figure. It seems not to have been noted in any great detail that Davis was textually and rhetorically, albeit not practically, engaged with Ulster in his earlier guise as an Elizabethan courtier poet. This can be seen most obviously, I think, in his rewriting or appropriation of one of the foundational texts of English Renaissance literary engagement with Ulster, which is Sonnet 39 of Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella. And it's worth, I think, quoting Sidney's sonnet in full to emphasise both the way in which Sidney writes Ulster and the way, uh, sorry, to emphasise how fully then Davis appropriates Sonnet 39. So Sonnet 39, whether the Turkish new moon minded be to fill her horns this year on Christian coast, how Poland's king minds without leave of host to warm with ill-made fire cold Muscovy, if French can yet three parts in one agree, what now the Dutch in their full diets boast, how Holland hearts now so good towns are lost trust in the shade of pleasing orange tree. How Ulster likes of that same golden bit wherewith my father made it once half tame, if in the Scottish court be weltering yet. These questions busy wits to me do frame. I cumbered with good manners answer do, but know not how, for still I think 
on you. This is, I think, among the most idiosyncratic sonnets in Sydney's sequence, and most obviously because the speaker of the poem is very close to identifying himself as Philip Sidney rather than as the fictional astrophil of the rest of the sequence. And it's the reference to Ulster in line 9 of the sonnet which allows us to make this identification. My father, of course, I don't need to tell you, is Henry Sidney, one of Elizabeth's Lord Deputies in Ireland. So the reference to Ulster is interesting here in terms of the way in which it allows us to glimpse a particular aristocratic English formulation of the late 16th century Ulster conflicts. For Sydney, in Sonnet 39, both Ulster and, importantly, Scotland seem to exist in a European rather than an archipelagic frame of reference. It's also of interest because of the ways in which the familial or dynastic elements of the Elizabethan approach to military conquest and colonial governance emerge in what might seem like the unlikely situation of a neo-Petrarchan sonnet sequence. Now, in his Meditations of a Gull from the mid-1590s, Davis rewrites Sidney's sonnet. And this is quotation three. See yonder melancholy gentleman, which hoodwinked with his hat alone doth sit. Think what he thinks, and tell me if you can what great affairs troubles his little wit. He thinks not of the war twixt France and Spain, whether it be for Europe's good or ill, nor whether the empire can, in its, can itself maintain against the Turkish power encroaching still, nor what great town in all the Netherlands the states determined to besiege this spring, nor how the Scottish policy now stands, nor what becomes of the Irish mutiny. But he doth seriously bethink him whether of the gull people he be more esteemed for his long cloak or for his great black feather, by which each gull is now a gallant deemed. Or if a journey he deliberates to Paris garden cockpit or the play, or how to steal a dog he meditates, or what he shall unto his mistress say. Yet with these thoughts he thinks himself most fit to be of counsel with a king for wit. So this is, it seems to me, simultaneously a celebration and a parody of Sidney's astrophil. It celebrates the speaker of Sidney's poem because, although Astrophil is unable to focus his attention on the political crises of early modern Europe, he is at least aware of them and aware of the fact that he should have an opinion, he should be able to speak of these things, unlike the gull in Davis' poem. Yet, I think, clearly the poem also parodies Astrophil uh, as his Petrarchan devotion to Stella is a form of narcissistic self-absorption, which is thus comparable, the poem suggests, to the vanity, the more obvious vanity, of the gull. More directly to the purpose of this paper, however, is Davis's replacement of a half-tame Ulster with an Irish mutiny. Events of the 1590s have overtaken Sidney's sonnet here, and this means that Davis can't share that Sydneyan confidence that Ulster has been even half-tamed. Davis, in fact, agrees with another contemporary poet writing in the 1590s, John Donne, who in his Elegy 20 diagnoses sick Ireland. Although Davis is unable to identify a treatment akin to Donne's decapitation or bloodletting, quotation four, 
Sick Ireland is with a strange war possessed like to an ague, now raging, now at rest. Which time will cure, yet it must do her good if she were purged, and her head vein let blood. Head vein, it seems to me, refers fairly obviously both to Ulster as the northernmost province and specifically to Hugh O'Neill as a synecdoche of, of Ulster. So letting blood from, from Ireland's head vein is quelling Ulster, but also getting rid of O'Neill in, in whatever way uh, is possible. So Davis is aware of the English problems in Ireland, but we might say doesn't display the level of provincial engagement that both Dunn and Sydney in an earlier age, decade, sorry, do. Now, if Davis perceived the Nine Years' War as a European conflict, as this poem suggests that he might have done, as did Sydney with an earlier Anglo-Irish encounter. Nevertheless, he was quick to realise that the advent of a multiple monarchy in 1603 meant that Ireland now could be profitably drawn into a more localised archipelagic frame of reference. In a poem entitled The King's Welcome, or in an earlier version entitled To the King Upon His Majesty's First Coming into England, Davis addresses his gentle muse to mount up and greet the new king. In the later version of the poem, James is mythologised as like Phoebus midst of all his golden train. In the earlier version, however, the meeting between the muse and the king is more geographically grounded. Thou must go meet King James upon the way advancing southward with his golden train. This archipelagic movement from Scotland to England is astronomically reflected in both versions of the poem. On, for the brave young sun above his head comes northward that he may his glory meet. While James is further praised as a Trinitarian figure, quotation five, see who it is whose actions do bereave that threefold power which rarely mixed we see. A judgment grave and yet a fancy gay joined with a rich remembrance, that is he. Now this tripling of James's qualities, positive qualities, is, I think, matched, Davis suggests, by his new triple kingdom. Uh, and Davis describes this as in an image of James as peacemaker in Ireland, an image which Davis would do much to promote in later writings and which would soon become widespread. Uh, quotation six. On, for the birds will help to fill thy song, whereto all English heartstrings do agree, and the Irish harpstrings that did jar so long to make the music full now tuned be. So what Davis is suggesting here clearly is that the accession of James will lead to a settled, peaceful um, archipelago, not just England and Scotland, but Ireland as well. In roughly contemporary writings, Francis Bacon also uses this image of the Irish harp moving from a jarred to a tuned state to make wider points about the civilising process, as he sees it, and about religious reform. I think Bacon's use of it is slightly more sophisticated than Davis. In Davis, it functions, I think, as a simple mystification of the complexities of the cultural and political situation in the north of Ireland. Um, and that may be because Davis isn't as well informed in 1603 as he would later become. 
Now, I'm not going to engage in detail with Davis's official writings describing his activities in Ulster in the first decade of the 17th century, um, because I didn't think I would have time to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, so I haven't got that with me, so I won't do it. But suffice to say that they are... Um, they're both plentiful and significant. There are lots of references to Davis' uh, <coughs> physical presence in Ulster, what he did there. Um, and they're important, I think, although I'm not a historian, but they do seem to me to be important for understanding how the Ulster situation was reported back to the court in, in England. I will briefly consider the representation of Ulster in Davis's best-known prose work, The Discovery. Now, in this text, Davis claims that even by these early years of James I's reign, English administrative expansion in Ulster had reached um, hitherto unachieved levels of success. And so successful has it been that there already exists a network of surveillance which maintains control over the Gaelic lords. So before the flight of the Earls in 1607, it is known not only how they live and what they do, but it is foreseen what they purpose or intend to do. In so much as Tyrone hath been heard to complain that he had so many eyes watching over him as he could not drink a full carouse of sack, but the state was advertised thereof within a few hours after. Now the discovery is, of course, a public text printed uh, for public circulation. It's for an English readership and it's printed post-1607 and post-1609, it seems to me that all of those mean that it's likely to exaggerate English success in Ulster. But this urge to derive a, a, a pleasure from the downfall of O'Neill is clear throughout Davis's writings, including in his state correspondence. Um, so he writes at one point that O'Neill has been defeated and Ulster has been reduced at last, the possessions of the Irishry in the province of Ulster, though it were the most rude and unreformed part of Ireland, and the seat and nest of the last great rebellion, are now better disposed and established than any of the lands in the other provinces which have been passed and settled upon surrenders. So that's from state correspondence rather than from a, a public printed text. So Ulster... Davis suggests, has been exceptional in its resistance to English authority and it's now to be seen as exceptional in its submission to English authority. Davis also, I think, contributes to the specific sense of providential loyalism found in later Ulster Protestant writers when he claims that as the occasion of the disposing of those lands did not happen without the special providence and finger of God, which did cast out those wicked and ungrateful traitors who were the only enemies of the Reformation of Ireland. So the distribution and plantation thereof have been projected and prosecuted by the special direction and care of the king himself. So James is divinely inspired, and no doubt Davis would have known how much James would have appreciated that um, as many of the settlers will come to believe themselves to be. And he's also, importantly for Davis, able to learn from the mistakes of his predecessors. 
So his majesty hath corrected the errors before spoken of committed by King Henry II and King John in distributing and planting the first conquered lands. So the plantation has been successful, according to Davis, because of its division of Ulster into small regions. Although there were six whole shires to be disposed, the six as cheated counties, his majesty gave not an entire country or county to any particular person. It has been successful, Davis claims, because of what he considers its lenient attitude towards the native Irish. His Majesty did not utterly exclude the natives out of this plantation with a purpose to root them out, as the Irish were excluded out of the first English colonies, but made a mixed plantation of British and Irish that they might grow up together in one nation. Now it's easy, I think, with the benefit of hindsight, to wonder at how such a shrewd, even Machiavellian politician like Davis could have been this naive, or could have presented himself as being this naive. But it does seem worth stating that there's an element of wishful thinking throughout the discovery, as indeed there is throughout much plantation-era English writing on Ulster. And such wishful thinking can be seen too in Davis' extension of the metaphor of plantation. The Irish, he writes, were in some places transplanted from the woods and mountains into the plains and open countries, that being removed like wild fruit trees, they might grow the milder and bear the better and sweeter fruit. I think Davis continues to think metaphorically, uh, even though he's not writing poetry at this point. And again, in quotation seven, the link between plantation, Protestantism and peace, a settled Ulster, is asserted. For when this plantation hath taken root and been fixed and settled but a few years, with the favour and blessing of God, for the Son of God himself hath said in the Gospel, Omnis plantatio, quam non plantant pater meus erradic Erradic. Yeah, you know what it says. Um, it will secure the peace of Ireland, assure it to the crown of England forever, and finally make it a civil and a rich, a mighty and a flourishing kingdom. What we can claim from this, I think, or I want to suggest anyway, is that if Davis is a key figure in establishing the political order of early 17th century Ulster, he's also, I think, a central figure in determining the dominant literary tropes via which Ulster comes to be represented in the later 17th century. But the discovery's final words on Ireland, which self-consciously echo Davis's earlier poem in praise of James, can only, of course, be seen as historically ironic, given the crises which would unfold in Ulster over the course of the 17th century. So this is quotation eight. Briefly, the clock of the civil government is now well set, and all the wheels thereof do move in order. The strings of this Irish harp, which the civil magistrate doth finger, are all in tune, for I omit to speak of the state ecclesiastical and make a good harmony in this commonwealth. So Davis is using the same image as his previous use, used in 1603. So as we may well conceive a hope that Ireland, which heretofore might properly be called the land of Ire, because the irascible power was predominant there for the space of 400 years together, will from henceforth prove the land of peace and concord. And in his explicitly political role as Speaker of the Irish Parliament, Davis repeated this optimistic vision of Ireland 
including an optimistic vision of the plantation in Ulster, as a melting pot of ethnicities working together for the common good. The inhabitants of the kingdom, English of birth, English of blood, the new British colony and the old Irish natives do all meet together to make laws for the common good of themselves and their posterities. Okay, so this is his rhetorical strategy. Lest there should be any doubt, Davis also reiterates uh, as speaker his claims both that Ulster resistance has been defeated and that this is the key to political stability in Ireland. And this is quotation nine. How glad would Sir Henry Sidney have been to have seen this day? He that so much desired to reduce Ulster but could never perfectly perform it. So we're going back to the Sydneyan inheritance here, I think. What honour would he have thought it unto himself if he might have held a parliament unto which that province should have sent so many worthy knights and burgesses as now it doth? So O'Neill has been defeated, and in his absence Ulster can be subsumed into the structures of English legal and political authority, which under the eye of Davis are to govern the whole island. But equally as important, I think the legal and the literary aspects of Davis' career can be seen as interacting here too. So as he rewrote Philip Sidney's engagement with Ulster, so he now rewrites Henry Sidney's Elizabethan failure in Ulster as a Jacobean success. And as such, Davis's self-promotion is that he comes to surpass the position of both Sidney's, just as James's policy in Ireland has surpassed he would claim that of Elizabeth. Thank you.